Okay, welcome Kevin to No Excuses Real Inspiration with Scott Marshall. So we're here today to find out about your fitness journey. So it's a real honour to have you on the show and thank you for giving up your time. Um, for the viewers, just give a brief introduction of who you are and what you do, please. <laughs> yeah, my, my introduction is, is, is probably not brief, but I'll make it brief. We'll, we'll get into it, I'm sure, as we go. So my name is Kevin Payne. Uh, my doctorate is in sociology and psychology. I live with multiple sclerosis, have for decades. And for me, fitness has been really crucial to attempting to construct a good life, even when I have to live with something that is kind of icky, dropped in my body with me. Yeah. So, you know, for me, I think so, so often when we get one of these diagnoses that is not going to go away, that becomes a reason for us to identify ourselves as sick and to give up on all forms of fitness. But for me, the important thing is, yeah, I may be sick in this one way. You know, my central nervous system is pretty wonky. But what that means is it is all the more important that I do everything I can to be as fit as possible in every other way. Not totally. Oh, and I, and I like to jump out of airplanes a lot, too. Yes, yes, you do. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so what we're going to do, uh, Kevin, we're going to go way back to school school activities um all right what things would you do back in school years <clears throat> back in my school years which for me were were the the ancient times of the 70s and 80s <laughs> <laughs> uh, we had well first we had playground equipment that would kill you and we were unapologetic <laughs> about it <laughs> so <laughs> So we, you know, I survived that much. I, I was a, I was, I was, you know, kind of a sickly geeky kid. And I had a, a very well-meaning, but neurotic mother who was, was always trying to protect me from things. And I was always trying to get out there and climb as high as I could and yeah. jump off of everything. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so that, that was a constant tussle uh, in, my, in my childhood and my, my, uh, in those formative years. Uh, growing up, I, I wasn't necessarily attracted to team sports I was more attracted to individual activities. So growing up, I liked the martial arts. I liked fencing. I liked, there's one of my swords on the wall behind me. I used to yeah. do live steel combat with that. Uh, and so those, those were the kind of the things that I was, I was interested in. I started lifting weights when I was about 13 or 14. And for me, that was a way of, at first, breaking away from this stereotype of being a sickly, geeky kid, Yeah. right? So it's a very typical story. 
Okay. And then, so obviously you mentioned you have MS. Um, mm -hmm. Were you diagnosed as a kid or was that later on in life? Uh, like many people with MS, I lived with weird symptoms for a long time before I finally got a conclusive diagnosis. <clears throat> so my first symptoms, which for me were like weird eye issues, my balance went kind of wonky. Uh, um, I, was, I was suddenly very fatigued and I was dealing with some cognitive confusion. And all that happened shortly after I turned 20 in 1989 and <clears throat> didn't get a, a, an, uh, a useful answer at the time. So those sorts of symptoms came and went. Okay. And then in 2002, I woke up one morning and I couldn't feel my left leg below my knee. I was just gone. Okay. And I thought I, thought I had overdone my workout the day before. And yeah. pinched a nerve or something and, and didn't really think about it. And then it, a few days later, it was better. And then it kind of came and went. And then other body parts started disappearing. And then one morning I woke up and I could feel my right arm and my head, but the rest of my body was gone. And at that point, my then wife said, no, you're going to get this looked at. And that set off kind of a, a, a cascade of medical errors and, and frivolity and, and, I came out with the diagnosis of MS. So, okay. I, 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 yeah. Okay. So, you know, what was your, your first reaction of, you know, what was your mindset? What were, you, what were you feeling when you eventually got that diagnosis? Yeah. So on the one hand, when you get a diagnosis like that, it's, it's kind of world shattering, right? Yeah. Because now you, you, you've got this thing that is not going to get better. Medicine has no clue how to make you better out of this. Uh, so, so that is daunting. But on the other hand, mostly I was relieved because at least I had a name to hang all this weirdness on. And, and I could read up about it and I could learn about it. And I, I could do something rather than just kind of shooting in the dark. Nah, totally. Okay. And then did you, so obviously you mentioned that you were still working out at this point. Um, mm -hmm. So did that change your mindset doing anything in particular, like going to the gym? Were you a wee bit more wary of things you were doing? Uh, well, you got to remember, I'm the guy who thinks that it's a good idea to jump out of planes all the time. So <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm, I may not be the most prudent in the yeah. world. So, so no, I mean, it didn't, it was, it was more than anything else, something that, that motivated me to redouble my efforts. Wow. Now what became frustrating about it was that, so I'm, I'm always medically fatigued and I'm always in pain. You know, I haven't had a pain-free day in almost 20 years. And, and uh, I'm always dealing with neurological weirdness that's yeah. happening in my body. So what, what I did learn was that as much as I wanted to be consistent in my workout, my big challenge was 
some days I was just really, really fatigued. And how do you, how do you fit a, a workout into your life when you're having a difficult time just moving around at all? Yeah. So, so for me, I came up, you know, I'm a social psychologist, so I've got all the education about brains and behaviors and that sort of thing. So for me, one of the most important insights was that we think about a workout as only doing a set of movements, right? Whatever that is. Yeah. And, and yeah, on one hand, it is a set of movements, but it's also cognitive and emotional and it's, and it's contributing to your sense of identity and, and all of those other things. And so I had to come up with this idea I call plan C. So we all have our plan A days. This is our, our plan. This is what we want to go out and accomplish in the day. Yeah. And many of us, we think we're being pretty, uh, we're being pretty exceptional if we come up with a plan B, right? Yeah. We got our backup. But what I realized is I needed a plan C for those days where I was just completely overwhelmed with my condition. And, and so that meant that even if I couldn't get a good workout in that day, I was going to do something to hold the place in my life for the regular habit of working out. Yeah. So it might, it might be a, you know, a really baby workout uh, and something that I would be kind of embarrassed to actually be doing with maybe no weights or like really light weights, things like that. On some days when I can barely get my body to move, because sometimes I'm dealing with spasticity and, and neurological weakness and things like that. It might be that I just go to my weight room which I've got a great weight room here at home and sit on the bench and mentally walk myself through what my workout would be if I could get my body to move. Yeah. Okay. And you, you've mentioned uh, about jumping out of airplanes, skydiving. <laughs> okay. So let's, let's talk about that. How did, how did you get this crazy idea into your head that you wanted to do this? Well, I've got, uh, there, it really serves two purposes in my life. One of them is, is it was a childhood dream. So as a kid, I, I, in the seventies, I went to an air show with my grandmother and the planes were cool, but there was this guy who, who did a demo jump and midway through the day, this old Cessna comes cruising low over the airport and this guy's hanging on the strut on the side of the plane and he lets go and he opens a parachute and it was a square parachute. And you got to remember, you know, these squares, those rectangular ram air parachutes that we use nowadays, those were new at the time. They had been invented in the 60s. So most of us, we thought about skydiving as just parachuting in the big round parachutes that you'd see yeah. from like World War II movies. Well, those you just drop down to the ground and you're at the mercy of the winds. But this guy, he flew it like a fixed wing glider. And he whizzed around and he whizzed over us in the crowd and he landed it on target. And I was like, wow, that is the coolest thing I've ever seen. I want to do that. So 
I started trying to build my own makeshift parachutes <laughs> and, and I would climb up to the highest place that I thought I could survive jumping from and I would jump off and I bent myself up pretty good sometimes, but I didn't break myself totally. So uh, that was that was kind of where it started for me. It was like, I really want to fly. And so in the 90s, when I was in grad school and I was working on my doctorate, I'm a young man now in my 20s. And I thought, you know, I really want to learn how to skydive. So I found a club drop zone a couple hours away and signed up. And, and back then, tandem skydiving wasn't really a thing. Yeah. Um, those have been invented in the 80s, but they weren't common. So to, to learn to be a skydiver, you had to go take all the training, go up and jump out yourself. And, and <laughs> land your own parachute and all that. So I did that. And, and I got a handful of jumps in. But what I realized is skydiving is not so much a hobby, but a lifestyle choice. And it requires a lot of time and a lot of effort. And I couldn't do that and finish my degree at the same time. So education kind of got in the way. And then you know, family and career and, and then health. Yeah. And, and I thought, I am never going to get back to skydiving again. And, and I had this, I had this wacky incident when I was, I was mowing the lawn and with MS, you've, you've got to make sure many of us are dealing with heat sensitivity. So if you overheat, your, your symptoms can flare up really badly. And it can also happen if you get really cold too, for some of us. Yeah. Uh, so, so I was mowing the lawn one summer morning, beautiful day. I thought I was respecting my limits. I wasn't, I had a sudden uh, flare up to my symptoms, felt like I was being stung by electric hornets all over my body. The pain was so much I passed out. So I, I, I froze up, I'm paralyzed. I, I wake up in the front lawn. It'd probably only been a minute or so that I'd been out. And fortunately the mower stopped and it didn't like roll back over me and cut me to ribbons. Oh, thank goodness for that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, and, and so I'm laying there paralyzed on the ground and it's the middle of the day and the weekday and nobody was there. So nobody ran over to see what I was doing or anything like that. And I look up the sky and I had this errant thought Wow, looks like a beautiful day to skydive. And, and, and then I laughed to myself and I said, I'm paralyzed here on the ground. There's no way I'm ever going to fly again. So I gave up. And my MS got worse and worse. And a lot of things happened in my life. And my life completely came apart. And one day, my son, who was then, this is you know five, six years ago. Uh, my son, who was uh, then... I guess it's four years ago, sorry, uh, who, who was then about 13, 14 years old, said, Dad, you know, you really suck at doing things for yourself. And, and on the one hand, that's a funny thing that, you know, it's a cheeky thing that a, that a, a teenage <laughs> yeah. kid would say, right? Uh, yes. But on the other hand, it was kind of soul-crushing, too. And I was like, wow, you know. I, and, and he was right. I, I had somehow let a lot of my self-care go by the wayside and I had become afraid of my own body because my body was always betraying me in 
different ways. So I thought, <clears throat> I need to do something just for myself. And I need to do something to reclaim my sense of confidence in the world. Yeah. And so I thought, well, you know, if you've got a sketchy body that you can't trust, what is the most logical thing to do? Fling yourself out of an airplane repeatedly and put yourself in a position where you have to perform or die. So that's what I did. Yeah. Kind of, kind of an extreme response. But, uh, you know, I thought if, if I can save myself every time at terminal velocity, then, uh, you know, I can, I, can, I can trust myself to get through day-to-day life. So I went back and I, I had to start all over again and redid the training. And usually it takes 25 jumps to get your A license. That's the first license in skydiving. Okay. It took me 47 because my legs were really wonky and difficult to control in free fall. And so if your legs are out of balance in free fall, then you start whipping around the sky yeah. and, and spinning out of control. So fortunately I had, uh, uh, you know, a bunch of instructors and, and support at the drop zone to help me figure out how to do this. I did a lot of extra tunnel time in those vertical wind tunnels so that I'd have an instructor right there. And even though I can't feel my legs below my knees, I learned to understand how the tension felt in the tendons behind my thighs. Yeah. So, so I, I, I figured out different signals and I figured out how to stand up a landing based on the pressure I felt at my knees rather than feeling my feet touch the ground. Yeah. So, so I did that. And then in, in, that was 2019. And then in 2020, I set myself a bigger goal. I said, I want to become a legit skydiver. So I had, I, in the rest of 2019, I had logged about uh, 140 some jumps. And I said, wow. okay, so in 2020, I'm going to set myself a serious goal. I'm going to become a legit skydiver, which means you got to cross 500 jumps to get all of your licenses in skydiving uh, to, to be eligible for professional ratings and that sort of thing. So it was like, I'm going to cross 500 jumps in 2020. And that meant I'm going to have to jump better than once a day for an entire year. Yeah. So that's what I did. And I logged 370 jumps in 2020. Wow. Uh, and got my licenses and a coach rating and all that yeah. stuff. Okay, um, so that's what I was going to, you know, what's your what's your favorite part about skydiving? What's <laughs> well everything, but but uh, so so like on the one hand, I think I think the lesson that you learn from skydiving is just a phenomenal, profound life lesson, and that is when you are inside the plane. On, on the inside of the door. That door opens and our natural response, you know, our fight or flight response, which is really a lot more than fight or flight, uh, kicks in. 
And your your little primal brain is there saying, you are not going to throw yourself out of this airplane because that is stupid. There is no reason to throw yourself out of an airplane. <laughs> but then on the other side of that fear, you cross through that door out into the, into the air and you are committed. There's yeah. no reset. There's no rewind. There's nothing. You are committed. And you are so focused. You are so mindful. You are so in that moment. And, and once you become used to it, um, humans are marvel, marvelously adaptable. And, and so once you become used to it, time sin, seems to slow down. Yeah. And your reflexes pick up. And, and, and it becomes an intuitive, natural experience. Oh, your friend is over there. You want to go over there to them and dock. And you think about it and f- you fly across the sky and, and you link up, right? And, yeah. and that is amazing. <clears throat> so every time I leave an airplane, I think in the back of my head, 82 seconds. Because from 14,000 feet, which is where we normally exit, my life expectancy is now 82 seconds unless I do something really right. Yeah. And, wow. and so that's what you have to do. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, um, what about uh, the pandemic, um, Kevin? So how, how did you deal with that yourself? Um, obviously, you mentioned um, in 2020, you've done your your license you've done lots of jumps so you were still out and about um but mm-hmm. during the pandemic how did you cope personally i guess i'm fortunate because i i work from home i i i live five miles from my drop zone okay so i you know i can i can like knock off and and run out on a beautiful day and get a jump in uh, and skydivers are, you know, what, what do they say? Batshit crazy anyway, to begin with. <laughs> so, so and except for about six weeks where they shut everything down around here in 2020, we were running the plane every day and, yeah. and still jumping. So uh, that was, it was, it was remarkably little change in my personal life. Yeah. Okay. And, and, you know, I focus on there are things I can do things about and there are things that I can't, I can't do anything about a pandemic. All I can do is be responsible myself and, and behave responsibly and mask up and social distance and do all the things that medicine says you should be doing. Yeah. And, and then just keep living my life. No, totally. And then, so let's talk about mental health. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, for yourself having MS, um, but, you know, with skydiving outdoors, um, would you say it's a huge factor, a, a benefit of mental health, skydiving and the great outdoors? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, skydiving is my number one self-care activity. So on, on like a, on a purely biochemical level, so they open the door and you exit and you get a massive shot of adrenaline. And then you get to 
the point in your skydive where you've got to deploy your parachute and you get a massive follow-on dose of, of serotonin and dopamine because it's like, I'm going to live. And, <laughs> and so you get that shot. And then after that, you hang out with your friends at the drop zone with your sky family, as we call ourselves, yeah. and swap lies about how well your skydives went and you get oxytocin. Yeah. So, so it's like the perfect biochemical cocktail. But also on a mental health level, there is this thing like on the cover of my book, there's this shot of me and, and it took us eight jumps over six weeks to get this exact shot that I wanted for this book cover. <laughs> and, you know, to get the light just right and the atmospheric conditions and everything. And, and on the cover, I'm doing this. I'm, so I'm there and that was at 5,000 feet. And... Uh, so that means I had 27 seconds left to live if I would have done nothing, right? Yeah. But I'm doing this. And, and this gesture is something that all skydivers know. And it's something that I explain in the prologue to the book. And it's called the wave off. And what that means is this is the point in the skydive where I am warning everybody else in my airspace that I am about to take action to save myself. So you wave off and you deploy your parachute. Okay. And that is such a profound moment because how many of us, when we go through our day-to-day -day lives, have a clear point in our day where we have to actively decide to save ourselves? Yeah, so that's an amazing gift. It is. So out of your, so let's talk about uh, Kevin's only own uh, bad habits within um, your day to day life or skydiving, um, because we'll make that the main focus anyway of our chat. Um, so, what do you have any bad habits when it comes to skydiving? Uh well, I guess bad habits get you killed in skydiving. Yeah. So, so there's there's not a lot of of uh, stuff. I mean, there've been there've been occasional skydives when I probably pulled too low. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but that's that's something you really you know don't want to do. You you pull too low, and and now we do all have uh, something called an AAD on our rigs. Which yeah. is an automatic activation device. So if you're going too fast, too low, your reserve parachute will automatically open. Ah, uh, good. You, you know, that's that's a few hundred feet from the ground. So, yeah. so, so it's not something you want to do. Yeah. So if I was to ask you if has that ever happened to you on any occasion? No, I have not had an AAD fire because okay, that good. would mean I would I, I would have had to have really, really not pulled. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I, I would never go that low. Yeah. Um, um, so if, you know, if we talk about you, you mentioned your, your skydive family. Mm -hmm. Okay. So obviously, what's, what's the pet hates within skydiving? Things that you might see on YouTube or, you know, day-to-day -day skydiving. Things that really bugs you. 
so 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 uh, there is this thing. So skydivers call non-skydivers whoofos. Okay. <laughs> okay. And a, and, and a whoofo is is short for why for you jump out that perfectly good airplane. And and that is the number one question that people ask if when they find out you're a skydiver. They say why do you jump out of that perfectly good airplane? So on the one hand, there are no perfectly good airplanes. There just really aren't. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, the, and the reason why we do it is because there is such joy and peace and accomplishment on the other side. Yeah. And, 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 and that's something that you can tell other people, but they don't get it until they've done it. Yeah. So, you know, the, the, the silly questions that people ask, there's, there's always people who are, and we actually have some, some secret groups that are about busting the chops of fake skydivers. So we, when it, because people will like, will like post pictures or videos where they're trying to fake that they are actually skydiving. Yeah. And, and. Uh, we we kind of troll them unmercifully uh, if, they, if they if they deserve it. So the, so that's you know if you if you want to do it, do it. Yeah. But but uh, don't act like you're doing it. Um, and then when you're skydiving, Kevin, do you have you ever or are you allowed to listen to music at all? Yeah, you know, in in my helmet, I've got <clears throat> a communication system. Yeah. In my helmet. And that it's still not super common among skydivers, but more and more of us are getting it. So they're like, oh, I don't know, maybe 12 or 15 of us at my home drop zone that have them. And, it, and it's synced to my phone. So I can actually like, you know, in the middle of a skydive, say like, hey, Siri, play whatever. <laughs> and and it, it'll play whatever I want or call. You know, I can make a phone call. Wow, from, that's, from my helmet. That's amazing. Yeah, and, I, um, and I've done that. So, you know, if you were to go out and do a skydive um, and to make it the perfect skydive ever, what would your your favorite music be? Oh, gosh. It really depends on the mood. Okay. Uh, and, <laughs> and, and, and normally I don't because yeah. what, I, what I really love is just... The, the silence of the experience, right? I mean, yeah. it's just white noise. You hear the white noise yeah. of the wind. And, and sometimes I like, I do, you know, I will jump without a helmet. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, like I did for, for this picture. That way everybody can tell, yeah, that's really, really me. Hair <laughs> streaming in the wind. Uh, and, and so on a, on a nice day, it's, it's really nice to do that and, and, and just be, and sometimes we'll do what's called a high pull. So you go out, and so at fourteen thousand, if you go out and you immediately pull your your parachute, then that gives you, you know, under my canopy, about twelve minutes wow. of canopy flight before you're down to the ground. And so on on like a sunset load, like when that photo was shot, it's it's gorgeous up there when you're up there in the magic hour just you in in the wind flying around yeah i even had one occasion where a bald eagle 
came and flew in tandem with me. Wow. I've got it on video. It's on my, it's on my Facebook. Yeah. Uh, if, if you look, but it's, I mean, just an amazing experience. Okay. So if I was to ask you, um, what's your favorite um, time to skydive? Would it be morning, evening? Oh, just about any time. I don't Anything? need much of an excuse. But but truly, there's that that sunset load that that we call it. You yeah. know, when you go up in the magic hour, especially if there's some beautiful clouds going on in in the vicinity, and and the sun on the horizon, you get this golden view. I mean, it's just it's just magical. Yeah. And if I was there, night skydives are really cool too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, over the period of your skydiving career, how many jumps would you say you have so far? Oh, I, yeah, you've got to keep track of all of them. I'm at 600 and counting now. I like so. that. I like that. I'm, I do hope you're, you're writing in a diary, some sort of book. You have to. You have yeah. to keep a log of uh, your skydives. I love that. And, um, and so. Because I, I tend to do that, you know, obviously. I work in health and fitness. and I've actually uh, note down the name of the class, where it was, you know, how many participants, you know, I've got documents dating back to 2015. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> so you've yeah. got to document that stuff. Um, but no, um, what's your best memory of your, your journey so far, Kevin? You know, there are a lot of them. And, and I think, uh, you know, if we, if we talk about skydiving specifically, yeah. uh, it was when I got my A license, my first license. And when I went back, I, I mean, I legitimately did not know whether physically I was going to be able to get my body to do this. Because there's, there's actually like over 100 skills that you have to check off to become licensed as a skydiver so it's yeah. it's not just throw on a parachute and go it's, yeah. there's, there's a lot to it and i didn't know and i instead of taking the 25 jumps you know i got to 30 jumps and 35 jumps and 40 jumps and i still wasn't licensed and you know there was still a lot of challenge and and I think, you know, they're at the drop zone. They wanted to make sure that I was going to be a safe skydiver, even though, yeah. you know, my, my body is impaired in some ways. And so I totally got that. And I had to jump through a lot of extra hoops that, that I totally respected having to do. Uh, but when that finally happened, when, when all the, it was, it was a day, it was a pretty busy day at the drop zone and, and, all the instructors kind of, of ganged up on the DZO, the, the owner of the drop zone, and said, yeah, you know, we think he's, he's paid his dues and he's going to be okay with this. And, and so uh, they all turned around at me and smiled real big. And there's this thing that skydivers do to congratulate one another. And... Uh, the, and, and everybody turned around and they gave me a him. And, and so everybody shouts him, him, F him. And, <laughs> and, 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 and 
and everybody else who's who's just visiting the drop zone and doing tandem and stuff like that they look around at this and they're like huh what's that but but that was and and then they stamp your forehead and then they stamp your your logbook and then they sign off on the paperwork and you are a legitimate licensed skydiver at that point and and because it was something that i had dreamed about from the time i was a kid and because it was something that i'd given up on getting yeah. my body to be able to do that was you know that was almost as satisfying as becoming dr pain yeah it really was it was because it was something that I just really did not know uh, if I was going to be able to get there or not. No, oh, fantastic, Kevin. And if I was to ask you, what's the best compliment you've received since you've been involved with skydiving? Uh, everybody thinks I'm a pretty good videographer. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I like shooting video uh, yeah. and that, but... But I guess, you know, maybe the this is this is one of those things that a lot of us with with largely invisible illnesses find really annoying. And that's when other people look at you and say, you don't look sick. But in the context of skydiving, that I can get through a jump with with people and we can do our thing. And then, you know, it's like somebody new that doesn't know me really well. And then afterward, they find out that I have MS and everything that I've gone through. And they look at me and they say, oh, you don't look sick. Yeah. That's actually a, a, a real compliment in, <laughs> in that, you know, because, because I'm able to do something physical. Yeah. And, and be just one of the gang. Yeah. Okay. And, and if you don't mind me asking, Kevin, what, what age are you just now? Oh, I'm 52. 52. Okay. So what, what age do you feel tra inside training age? Yeah, my, my, about 32 or yeah. so. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And yeah. on your journey, who would you say has been inspirational to you as a role model, if there's anyone been there to help you along the way? I'm probably kind of shy on role models. I mean, I, I, there, there are people that I look to and, 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 you know, admire in, yeah. in different ways, but I don't really compare myself to others. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm very focused on comparing myself to myself. Yeah. And, and so there are, there's certainly lots of people that that I admire for whatever they're doing, but uh, and and there are certainly people who I've learned from, but I'm I'm more focused on just comparing myself to myself, yeah, and 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 just trying on average to get a little better each day, yeah, knowing that some days are going to be bad days, they're going to be plain C days. No, definitely. And then out of your week just now, um, how many jumps are you doing on average? It depends on the time of year. So okay. right now, since we're we're uh, right, you know, at the beginning of January, my local drop zone, my home drop zone, is uh, closed for this month, this year. And sometimes we've jumped in January, but uh, once we once we get back 
into action at the beginning of February, you know, weather permitting, I'll jump, you know, anywhere from like two to 10 times a week. Yeah. And over the course of your, your jumps, Kevin, what's the highest altitude you've, you've jumped from? Yeah, about 14, two or three. There's, yeah. there's a, uh, there's a hard deck limit. You can't, you can't go above 15,000. Okay. Because there are, are like FAA regulations yeah, that, that keep you there. You, you're going into class A airspace, but there's also <laughs> a practical limitation that uh, you have to have oxygen above 15,000. Yeah. So I've I've got a, a halo jump on my list. I was I was going to do that uh, in 2020. I was going to do some traveling with it, but then you know everything got yeah. completely screwed up. So I hope this year uh, I've got you know because I've got <clears throat> want to get a halo jump in. I want uh, a biplane jump, a balloon jump. I had I was going in 2020. I had I was going to go to the pyramids boogie, which is a boogie is a skydiving party, and and so that's what they call them. And there's one where each year where everybody where you go to the great pyramids in Egypt yeah. and you jump over the pyramids. Wow! So uh, that's that's on my list to do as soon as. Uh, travel looks like a, a good option. Yeah. Um, well, you, you actually you you covered the last point there. What I was I was going to ask you, what's the one thing that you'd like to achieve in the next year? Um, yeah, it's it's you, so. one of the things that I think is cool is you know now that the world I hope is opening. We can't tell what Omicron is going to do here, but yeah. it, there's some signs of opening up again and and. With, with my book coming out here, uh, you know, there's a lot more opportunities to go out and speak yeah. and do that sort of thing again. So I'm, I'm looking forward to speaking more and then traveling with my rig and wherever I am, yeah. going to, you know, going to the local drop zone there and getting a jump or two in and seeing different parts of the world from altitude. Yeah. Okay, Kevin, let's talk about your book. Sure. Um, so, so how did you how did you come up with the idea to write a book to start with? Well, I I mean I was a professor for fifteen years and I did you know I've done academic research for decades and uh, I was really compelled. You know, my 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 then wife told me when when I started doing this because because my reaction to being diagnosed with MS was okay, I'm going to turn myself into a guinea pig and I'm going to experiment on myself pretty ruthlessly and tweak movement and nutrition and environment and behavior and habit and everything yeah. I possibly can to improve my quality of life. Because now a lot of that stuff can't be left to chance. So I had to be more purposeful, more mindful about that stuff. But I also realized, you know, as a scientist, I can't generalize from me. I, so I started talking to lots of other people and I started collecting lots of data and I started analyzing data across a lot of studies. And pretty soon that naturally became, oh, this needs to be a book. 
and and it needs to be a curriculum and it needs to be you know ways to get this out because when we get diagnosed with a medical condition we tend to think about it only as this list of medical signs and symptoms that we're dealing with yeah and that's part of it but it's also a medical condition that we're not going to get past or at best it may be a few months or years where yeah. we can get past it so in the united states right now and over half of all americans now have at least one chronic health diagnosis and most of the world western europe australia you know canada etc are not too far behind us so the trends are not in in our direction what that means is there are a whole lot of things that 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 medical condition just kind of spills out into the rest of our lives and it affects the way you see yourself the way others see you yeah. the way you think the way you feel the way you behave all that stuff so i wasn't the kind of doctor that could help with a medical part of that diagnosis but as social psychologists what we do is we study the person in the situation and this is what i was interested in how does living with a health condition that you're not going to get over or there's no guarantee you're going to get over how does that affect your quality of life and then what can we do proactively to address all of those non-medical levers thoughts feelings behaviors relationships environment etc that we can have some influence or control over to improve our quality of life which in turn may also improve our quality of health in some ways too but what i'm concerned about more is that broader question of how do we live a good life yeah and notice i didn't say happy because happy is only one little part of it yeah and and if you try to be happy all the time you are setting yourself up for failure but we want to feel happy satisfied functional engaged meaningful secure i mean there there are lots of really good values that that we can dig into yeah and that that we can bring into our lives and so, so that's what the book is about the book is one third memoir wrapped around two third science so it tells my story which goes to some really dark places and uh, you know comes out on the other side and and because i didn't want my book to be scientist guy talking at people i wanted people to understand that yeah i'm scientist guy but i live this every day too and i understand those challenges yeah. from the inside okay so what's the name of your book kevin it's called your life lived well and the subtitle is the science of crafting a good life under chronic distress pain and illness okay and you mentioned the book is coming out soon when is that yeah february 7th february 7th and is this available amazon yeah it'll be available on amazon and as many other places as as we can get it in yeah fantastic and if people wanted to contact you directly on social media 
Um, yeah. Obviously, on the back of this podcast, if I've got any questions, where can they find you, Kevin? Sure. I tried to make it really easy so they can go to yourlifelivedwell.co or if they can't remember that, go to justjump.life. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> And that maps onto it. And uh, on social media, you know, the, the book, my podcast, the company, all of that is Your Life Lived Well. So it's Your LL Well at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn. If they want to contact me personally, uh, it's I'm always Dr. KJ Payne, D-R-K-J-P-A-Y-N-E on all the usual yeah. platforms. But go to Your Life Lived Well and there are links to everything. Ah, fantastic. Um, And then before we round up, um, Kevin, have you got any advice for people with MS who have just been diagnosed um, or people want to take an interest in skydiving? Well, yeah, if you if you have just been diagnosed with with any kind of scary condition. Yeah. And and, you know, that's MS diabetes, cancer, um, you know, depression, anxiety, you name it. I mean, it's just, the one thing that I want people to remember first is that you are still you. You are the, still the same person you were before you had a label attached to you. You don't have to become your diagnosis. It's something you live with, but you can still live with it, not yeah. just exist. So, so you are still you. And if you want to try skydiving, skydiving is one of those things that if you don't want to do it, then I recommend you trust your gut and don't do it. <laughs> if you think you may want to do it, give it a shot. It's, it is remarkably safe. I mean, skydiving is a dangerous activity that can be done safely. Yeah. So, so like in the U.S. last year, there were like three and a half million skydives or so and, uh, you know, less than 30 fatalities. Yeah. So you do the math. It's, it's vanishingly small. And, and especially if you're doing a first jump, with, you know, as a, as a tandem student. You are attached to someone with hundreds or thousands of jumps and a massive amount of training, and you're going to be fine. Yeah. So if you think you want to try it, try it. If you don't, don't trust your gut <laughs> on this one. Ah, fantastic, Kevin. And then before we round up, have you got any questions for myself? What do you get out of these conversations? Um, so basically... Um, for myself, it gives me a wee, how do I put it? So for you, um, you obviously get energized after a skydive, right? So effectively, mm-hmm. I get the same, you know, the same feeling, the same rush, because, you know, I'm hearing about your stories, you know, I've interviewed, I don't know, over 50 different people now, um, and mm-hmm. I've had people from... Canada, America, Sweden, and the UK. Um, but the one thing we've all got in common is we're a community. We're, you know, that, that's the thing. Um, I got into health and fitness because I lost weight. Um, two guys helped me. And then on the back of that, I'm now helping others. 
and then I was away up north in Scotland a couple of months ago with my partner um, for my 31st birthday, so I'm getting old. <laughs> um, and I, I kept posting that I had I would, something new was come, coming and and then it just hit me. When I was at a walk, I was like, I'm going to start a podcast, just like the way it came to you about the skydive. And knowing the back of that, I've met so many interesting people. I absolutely love it. Um, this is now part of my life. I'll, I'll work, I'll train, and I'll podcast. That, that's what I want to do. Very cool. Um, so one, one final question from me, and that is, what is it you wish I was smart enough to ask you? Um, <laughs> I think you're too smart for this show. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about that. No, no. Generally, um, it's good to have, you know, obviously we, we reached out on social media together um, mm-hmm. on the, the podcast the community group. But it was good to have someone different. Um, it's not that often I have someone who has a medical condition of MS and who loves to skydive. That is a very unique, very unique um, person. I, I know only one other per- person with MS who's a licensed skydiver. I'm sure there are others out there, but I only know one. Is that right? hmm Wow. Yeah. There you go. A very small percentage. But you know what, Kevin? You are, you know, you might be a small percentage, but that word, again, unique to the world. <laughs> well, I hope, you know, it, it, it's, yeah, it's a wacky story. Guy with MS you know, finds himself again through skydiving. I hope ultimately if people find the story interesting or, you know, inspirational or motivational or whatever it is, yeah, that's great. But what I'm concerned with is what each of us do after the motivation fades. Yeah. And, and, and so what I'm interested in is if they're interested in the story, then check out the science that you know can really help you figure out how to build your better life because this isn't about a a way or a method or or something like that because it doesn't work for everybody the same thing doesn't work for everybody what i was interested in is putting out a book that said this is how you can learn to understand yourself in a way that will allow you to construct your own path. That's what I'm interested in. Yeah, no, totally. And I think that's what a lot of people will get that. Um, They'll get, obviously, we'll get that from our story together for um, our podcast. And then hopefully um, a lot of people will check out on social media, your websites, and hopefully... The big thing is they'll buy your book. <laughs> um, but it's been a real pleasure, Kevin, and, and hopefully we can do this again. Well, I, you know, I have, I've been delighted to spend this time with you, Scott. And as I said, I'm, I'm always glad to meet another Glaswegian. So. No, thank you, Kevin. <laughs>